0: do you love pigeons? Do you know someone who loves pigeons? You are in luck. Today we're going to be talking about pigeons on Living Writers. So stay tuned on WCBM FM Ann Arbor.
1: Maybe I'm in love with you. 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 I say maybe. Maybe I'm in love with you.
0: Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and in just a moment, you'll be hearing a new episode of Living Writers. Today, I'll be speaking with Kathleen Rooney about her latest novel, Share a Me and Major Whittlesey, out with Penguin Press. But first, I wanted to tell you about an event happening at Literati Bookstore today, and you can go to it at 7 p.m., It'll be featuring Kathleen Rooney, our guest today, in conversation with Juan Martinez, um, and they'll. If you head to literatibookstore dot com, uh, you can click on the event link to join the event at seven p.m. and that'll be live tonight, October seventh, twenty twenty. Um, Meantime, stay tuned for a new episode of Living Writers and my conversation with Kathleen Rooney about her latest novel, Shara Me and Major Whittlesey. Good afternoon, You've Got Living Writers, and I'm T. Hetzel. Today, I'm so pleased to have Kathleen Rooney joining me via technology uh, to talk today about her latest novel, Cher Ami and Major Whittlesey. Kathleen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's it's lovely to talk with you this afternoon. I should say we're taping this on October fifth, twenty twenty, and and Kathleen, where where
2: are you speaking to us from? I am in Chicago, and um, if people know Chicago, I'm in the Edgewater neighborhood, which is on um, the north side, and it really is at the edge of the water. So I'm about half a mile from Lake Michigan.
0: And how how are you doing these days? Like, are you taking? Are you able to get to the water a lot to? To deal yeah. with the, the the time of COVID,
2: yes, I you know I love Lake Michigan no matter the era. But I will say that um, you know since March I've been going to look at the lake almost every day, and it's really been perspective giving. I um, you know it's beautiful and all that, but even even stuff that used to freak me out like climate change and the fact that it's rising and that we should probably be pretty worried about erosion feels. I don't want to say comforting it's a real problem but kind of um a new way to think about time and to think about um stuff that's not just human and stuff that's been here before us and stuff that'll be here after us so I guess I'm I'm up here getting pretty existential about things.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's certainly the time for it and it's yes. and are you doing okay with that cuz that can be pretty heavy. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um I I don't know. I think you kind of see this probably in Share and Major Whittlesey where I, I, I think other people do this too, but I don't find it strictly depressing to think about stuff that um, gets categorized as depressing. I find, I don't want to say comfort, but again, just perspective and thinking about stuff that's kind of heavy. So I think, yeah, I think it's a good sign that I'm still thinking about that stuff. I'd be more worried if I were not feeling anything. So I'm I, hanging in there.
0: Oh, that's good to hear. And, <laughs> thanks uh, for asking. <laughs> and I think that that's the poet in you, Kathleen, probably.
2: Uh, I know. Thank you. <laughs> I think so. I think so.
0: Before we go any further, I'll, I'll read your bio and, yeah. and then we'll, we'll add to it. And, and then talk about your wonderful book, Me and Major Whittlesey. Kathleen Rooney is a founding editor of Rose Metal Press and a founding member of Poems While You Wait. She's the author, most recently, of the novel Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk and the co-editor of Renée Magritte Selected Writings. Her previous work includes poetry, fiction, and nonfiction and has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Allure, Salon, Chicago Tribune, The Nation, and elsewhere. She teaches English and creative writing at DePaul University and lives in Chicago with her spouse, the writer Martin C., And you are also a known pigeon enthusiast. Yes, very well known. (laughs) Even from when you were a girl, Kathleen. Is this right? Like with birds and pigeons in particular because of what they they symbolize to you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I have always um, sort of been drawn to cities and, you know, I grew up in small towns as well as the suburbs. and no disrespect to any of those places, but they're just not where I have ever felt happiest. I've always been happiest in urban environments. And so as a kid, especially once my family settled in the suburbs of Chicago, anytime we would go into the city with, you know, cousins from Nebraska to take them to see (laughs) the Cubs or to go to the Field Museum or to look at the lake, uh, I would be really heartened by the sight of pigeons because i knew what meant we were in this environment that i really loved and that if pigeons were nearby we were in a place that was one that i wanted to live someday so i know it can sound corny um my love of chicago i mean chicagoans tend to really love chicago and i'm no different <laughs> but i think you know i'm truly living the dream to get to be living not just in a suburb but in the city proper um and to always every day like not a day goes by that i don't see pigeons and i just they they represent to me all that is the best about cities and people oh
0: i love that because sometimes you know the the pigeon is much maligned and and uh and i feel like that um I, as as many americans and people around the world there's been this i've i've had a new love affair with birds and i was already getting up there to be probably you know thrown in the category of bird watcher, which yeah. I never would have imagined. But now it's like, it's a sealed deal, I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I love the, the you know, sort of wave of pandemic birdwashing that's been sweeping the nation. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, as someone who loved it before, I've found it even more Entertaining and pleasing, and I—I'm excited. I know some people get territorial about their hobby or you know look <laughs> askance at Johnny Come Latelys, but I think bird watching <laughs> is like a big tent, and I—I I say to everyone, get over here. And I think—I mean, I'm a very pedestrian bird watcher. I don't. Uh, my my husband Martin has you know the bird app on his phone and things, and I, I'm more casual about it, which is why I'm I'm more in the zone of just being so thrilled to see like a chickadee or a junko, or of course a pigeon. Um, I just, I think it doesn't have to be that fancy as long as you're enjoying it.
0: Completely, completely. Do you, um, have you ever had um, a relationship with a, a bird, Kathleen, or a, a bird as a pet? Because I, I guess we see in Cher Ami and Major Whittlesey, um, we see the, the, the relationship between um, a bird
2: and, bird and man. Yeah, I've um, never had a bird as a pet. And I'm, um, you know, I, I'm part of these organizations, but just on a casual level as someone who gives money or who's donated copies of books. Um, but, you know, like Great Lakes Pigeon Rescue and one called Palomacy out in the Bay Area. And they are these groups of dedicated volunteers who save injured birds or who rescue oh. them from uh, the food industry or the racing industry. And so I've never actually fostered a pigeon, although I will confess that I spend inordinate parts of a couple days every week looking at the pigeons that are available for adoption. So we'll see someday. So this could be happening. It could, it could. I mean, I I bring it up often with Martin and he's not opposed. That's what I was going to say.
0: Get ready, Martin, get ready. Yeah,
2: yeah. but we did have, um, while I was writing the book, this really beautiful set of visitors. We had this pigeon couple named well we named them they may have had names unto themselves that were not revealed to us but we named them walter pigeon and coup d'etat because we're (laughs) dorks and like puns and all summer long they lived under the eaves of our um porch we're on the third floor so we're on the top unit of our condo and they raised their pigeon babies who we named molly wingwald and feather locklear (laughs) and it was beautiful i i think the thing that people don't know um In cities, often it's like, where do all the pigeons come from, right? There's that joke of like, you see pigeons everywhere, but you never see a baby pigeon. And it felt very special and rare to actually get to see baby pigeons. Because when you think about it, for the most part, they're pretty hidden.
0: Yes. Oh, completely. I, I love that they are also all in your acknowledgments. Captain yes. too yes. <laughs> I love that um, so writing about well, well let's talk a little bit about let's talk about the novel that we have it's your fourth novel um, and we've got Jeremy and Major Whittlesey on the table with us um, based and inspired on a true story which is is something is a way that you've written novels before Um but let's talk about this one and then maybe connect it to the others as well. Yeah. Had yeah, it, so again, oh, do I, you want to talk about the inspiration for this yeah, one?
2: Kathleen. Totally. So I teach at DePaul University and I teach a class called Writer as Urban Walker, which is sort of, you know, not based on Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, but is Centered on the same interests that helped me write Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk. I've always been a walker ever since I was a little kid. I love mapping places with my feet. Um, Anytime I get somewhere, I don't really feel like I've arrived until I've taken a walk. And so I teach a class, kind of, there's this rich literature, as you know, probably you and uh, listeners know, of authors finding inspiration from the city. So we look at everything from Virginia Woolf's street haunting to Teju Cole's open city. And so my students write typically about walking in cities. And so this student of mine, Brian Michich, who is now a lawyer and who I'm still in touch with and who's read the book and likes it, which is important to me for reasons that will become clear, uh, wrote this poem and it had a totally just tossed off throwaway line about an old guy sitting on a park bench in a city being surrounded by pigeons. And then it had this parenthetical aside that said, this was no Cher Amish story, look it up. Because I always tell my students to look things up. And so that was him being like, ha ha, look it up. (laughs) And I was like, I will. And when I did, I was stunned. I had never heard of Cher Ami. I had never heard of Charles Wilson. but I totally tumbled down the Wikipedia rabbit hole. And when I did, I found what this book is about, which is World War I, October of 1918. There was this group of men called the Lost Battalion or, you know, they came to be called that. They weren't called that, but after what they went through, that's what they became known as. Mm -hmm. And it was this group of Americans who were from New York and they were led by Charles Whittlesey. And it was one of these classic World War I situations where all along the line, just tens of thousands of men were ordered to charge, to hop out of the trenches and advance until the last man dropped. And all the higher ups said, you know, don't bother with taking Supplies, don't bother with taking rations, don't even bother with first aid kits because you're just going to go till you get there. And everybody did this, but everyone retreated because it was so awful and because the German opposition was so intense, except for my guy, Charles Whittlesey, who followed the order and who got his men through. And normally, you know, we want to be exceptional, we want to achieve our objective, (laughs) but this was awful because he didn't know he was the only one who did it and they got surrounded um in this thing called the pocket where the germans you know as you can imagine outnumbered them tremendously and so while they were there uh it was bad enough without food without water with the german snipers but then and here's where cher ami comes in they started getting attacked by american artillery it was a friendly fire incident and so cher ami was their last pigeon because pigeons were used all the time in World War One and even World War II to, to convey battlefield messages. And so they sent her with the little message that said, you know, for heaven's sake, stop it. That's how Whittlesey put it, to, to stop shelling yes. your own guys. And she saved them. And as a result of that, um, normally if a pigeon, you know, she was hideously injured, and normally, sadly, in the war, they would just kind of throw the pigeons away. They were considered as much you know, material as they were soldiers. They didn't, you know, care about them the way they did about humans, but they knew that what she had done was so important that they stitched her up, she had lost a leg, they gave her a little wooden leg. And then after she died months later, they put her in the Smithsonian. So that's where the book opens. She's sitting in the Smithsonian <laughs> thinking about this experience that she had.
0: And and Kathleen, did you go to the Smithsonian to to visit yeah. her in person?
2: I did. I did. And, you know, for me, as you can imagine, um, I mean, I think anybody who writes anything, whether it's historical or not, probably does some research, but I'm really, really all about research. And so uh, Brian wrote this poem in the fall of 2013. And I sort of kicked the idea around in my head. And because the academic schedule is a very flexible one, for which I'm grateful, I had my summer off. And so in July of 2014, I was in Washington, D.C., visiting friends and doing a reading for a different book. And I immediately, as soon as I arrived and dropped my stuff off at my friend Abby's house, I went to the Smithsonian and I visited Cher Ami, And it was a profound experience because she... I, I think sometimes when people hear about messenger pigeons or, um, you know, pigeons that got used in the war, they picture something special and they just look like regular pigeons, oh. which is not to say they're not special, but they just she just looks like a pigeon you would see on the street. And, you know, she's a little sleeker and a little smaller because she was, you know, bred for speed, but she's essentially just a pigeon like you could find in any city. And you could really tell just by looking at her, you know, her legs missing. Just She's a pigeon who's been through a lot. And so even though I wasn't able to go to, like, a pigeon archive, you know, pigeons don't have written records that we know of. she, She was her own written record in a way. You could just look at her body and think about what she had performed.
0: And when, when did you know that you were going to have her speaking and, and use her voice? Because in an, in an earlier book, um, I think you have a Pomeranian telling part yeah. of the story, right? So how did you, when did you know that, um, that she would speak too? that Cher Ami yeah. would speak?
2: I, yeah, so in, so that book is a, um, the listening room, which is based on, um, the work that I did on co editing Rene Magritte's selected writings. And so just oh, yes. a little, a little side digression. Um, when I was working on that, I discovered that, you know, Rene Magritte and his wife Georgette always had Pomeranian dogs and the dogs were always named lulu and so when and this is very Magritte because if you're a fan you know he kind of will get a theme and just repeat it over and over and over which i personally love and so they just did that with dogs like one lulu would die and they would get another lulu so i i thought how interesting that a man whose art manifested itself in that similar repetitive way would have had pets that he also sort of treated in this repetitive way. And I don't mean that to sound callous. I think, I mean, when you read about how much he and Georgette loved their Lulu's, there can be no question of their dedication. They never had kids and they were, you know, nowadays everybody treats their pets like children, right? Like fur babies. But back in the thirties and forties, that wasn't as much of a thing. So he was, you know, he wouldn't go into restaurants if they said no dogs allowed. And like when oh. he flew places, the airlines would try to put Lulu in like cargo, and he was like, no way, I'm getting Lulu a seat. <laughs> so <laughs> ahead of his time, I think, and his attitude toward animals. But that actually, so even though that book came out in 2018, which is before Cher Ami, um, I was already working on Cher Ami at the time. So oh. to, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, so to answer your question, I've, I've often been interested in books from non-human perspectives, because I think, you know, fiction can let us hop into the consciousness of people who are very unlike ourselves. And so I thought, why not beings who are different than ourselves? And so I, I would say that as soon as I was on that Wikipedia page, I mean, it's so banal, but like, literally just sitting there on my laptop, like everybody does looking at Wikipedia. (laughs) I was like, okay, Cher is going to have to speak. And of course you can't, I mean, Cher and Major Whittlesey are like chocolate and peanut butter. You can't separate them (laughs) because they just go together and and the story isn't complete without both. I knew that I was going to have to do this um, first person pigeon, first person soldier and go back and forth between them to kind of tell the story as I wanted to tell it. And
0: so did it seem like a natural when you were writing it, Kathleen, is that how you were also generating even the first draft where you would go back and forth between the voices weaving this or did, or did you have blocks of it, of the story and then go back to bring the voice of the other in to, to have it go back and forth?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And I, I think, um, for me, when I write novels, I'm extremely outlined. I I write all the genres, and I'm not this way with every single thing I write. But fiction to me is incredibly architectural, and it's like building a house, and it's hard. And I can't personally imagine building a house without a blueprint. Like, I don't think I could just build a house um, that would stand, I could build a a thing that looked like a house, but it would probably fall down. And I feel the same way about fiction. I I know there's writers out there who just hear voices and, you know, let the voice speak to them and kind of almost you know, my friends who write that way almost make it sound like a form of dictation, like they're just taking down what this character says to them. And I think that sounds amazing, but it's never happened to me. Um because I I think I come at it from a a different direction where I've I've got my outline and my plans. So I guess it's a less romantic answer than some people might have, but I planned out from the start, like here's what I want each of them to talk about. And I think sometimes people hear about the book and are like, ah, a war novel and it is, and it isn't because the war is just part of it. But you start, you know, in both of their cases after the war, and then you get this flashback in their lives to their childhoods, how they grew up, what values they had and sort of like what in the world would lead these two people to be in the meuse Forest in October of 1918, and then what happens after. So, you know, I knew I knew right away, to answer your question, that it had to be this sort of ABAB pattern where we'd hear from Cher Ami, we'd hear from Wit, and we would just have to kind of go back and forth until the story of both of them had kind of exhausted itself. You know,
0: Kathleen, would you mind reading so that we could hear from each of their voices
2: yeah yeah I so what I'll do just so people know what they're kind of hearing is um I'll start with chapter one which is Sherami me inside the Smithsonian and then I'll pause and then I'll go to um, the beginning of chapter two which is Charles Whittlesey and you'll kind of get a sense of how how the two voices work so chapter one Sherami. On monuments matter most to pigeons and soldiers I myself have become a monument, a feathered statue inside a glass case. In life, I was both a pigeon and a soldier. In death, I am a piece of mediocre taxidermy collecting dust in the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. The museum has closed and everyone has gone home. The last guests took their leave at 5.30 as they do every weekday, and even the janitorial staffers have finished their tasks. Miles of floor, polished and pine scented, Acres of displays gleaming and silent. A few hours remain before midnight. This is the eve of the 100 year anniversary of what, according to the United States Army, was the most important day of my avian life. October 4th, 1918. I'm not sure I agree. That day was an important one, certainly, but days don't carry the same meaning for pigeons as they do for humans. And my life comprised other days. Days that might be equally worth note, if not to the army, then at least to me and to those I loved. Pigeons can love, pigeons cannot fight. Yet I was once as well known to school children and grown-up citizens alike as any human hero of what was then called the Great War. Hence the stuffing of my mangled body, hence my enshrinement here in the grandmother's attic of the entire country. And so that's Cher Ami. And then um, you you hear more from her a few more pages, but we'll just jump to chapter two. And so here's Charles Whittlesey, and he too has sort of a retrospective voice, but he is not narrating from a museum or from beyond the grave. He's narrating from November of 1921, so about three years after the war ended, and he's in New York City, which is where he lives. Monuments matter most to pigeons and soldiers. Some matter more than others. None matter more to me than the Soldiers and Sailors Monument on Riverside Drive on the Upper West Side. It's not a monument for my war, the Great War, the war that has caused me to be known these past three years as Go to Hell Whittlesea, heroic commander of the Lost Battalion. Instead, it's white marble gleams for the Union Army, which won the Civil War almost 60 years ago. The Soldiers and Sailors Monument Has a personal significance for me, one that has nothing to do with war. It's where I, fresh from Harvard Law School, naive and lonesome, met the man who would be my entree into the double life I led until I chose to let the war interrupt it. And so we go with him from there.
0: Oh, thank you, thanks, Kathleen. I I love that they both have the same first assertion, the the first the lead line in. How we meet both of them is the same.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that was something I—I um, I was very interested, in. I, I keep that up all the way across the novel. So each um, opening line of each chapter is the same. So you keep going, you know, sort of two by two by two uh, between both of them. And I thought of that early on too. I'm a big structure person. I—I I like thinking, like I said, of the architecture of a book. And to me, that was a way to. I don't know. I don't want to overinterpret it. Hopefully, readers no, no, have their interpretations. No, no, please. No, Kathleen, that's <laughs> but, my that was my yeah. question.
0: So, yeah. yes, oh, okay, please good. do um, do talk about it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, to sort of, in hopefully, it works on several levels. But to sort of say, you know, the Great War is this big historical event, and if people are history fans, they probably know a lot about it. But to sort of say that even events which seem very well known or very well trod, or which you know, literally millions of people experienced like no two of them had the same experience. So, you know, in each chapter they start in the same sentence, but they very quickly depart and share a experiences are very very different than those of Whittlesey even though there's a big sympathy between them. So, you know, part of it was just trying to call attention to the toldness of history and history yes. as a story that has a perspective and and I don't want to say like there's no truth there. We can never know what happened because I think especially in 2020 the truth is super important. Yeah. But that, you know, it's not a monolith and that it it can always be reconsidered. And then also I I kind of knew that some readers might not like or buy into the pigeon voice, um uh, oh. which I I love strange points of view and I think anything is fair game in fiction if you can get away with it and you know if you if you pull it off you pull it off but i i know some people don't like animal narration um so that was me kind of trying to say you know like animal narration is not a big deal it's not that different it's it's an account like anything else so you know listening to share me say something shouldn't be that much harder to swallow than listening to any other made up voice that you're Listening to if you read a novel, so people people can still disagree, of course. And I I don't think it's fun when a book is beloved by literally everyone. But I I did hope it would make some people give the pigeon voice more of a chance.
0: That yes, that is so interesting too. The well, let's talk about Cheremi's, uh vo- her voice um, because in the the opening passages, the paragraphs you read for us, Kathleen, they it's so much is conveyed in a short space, but also like a, a, a tone of, of humor and, uh, uh, pathos intelligence comes across.
2: Yeah. And I, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm glad it reads that way to you because that's definitely what I was hoping for. And I think I have to, you know, I, I don't think I've made it through an interview about this book without making this pun, but it's true you know, I think her bird's eye view is the <laughs> oh, news. No. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> I was like, I know. What, what is Kathleen? It's, it's right there. It's always there. And I have to pick it up off the table every time. Um, but she's, you know, I didn't want the pigeon voice to be cutesy. I wanted it, though, to be strange and to be, you know, the thing about pigeons is very similar to any other domesticated animal where they exist in this kind of in-between space of you know they're not humans but they're not wild exactly they're sort of domesticated so they have their instincts and they have their tendencies and they have all of their own qualities and traits but they've also got tens of thousands of years of human intervention Mm -hmm. to breed them to have certain behaviors and qualities. And so I think, you know, a pigeon is a really interesting narrator to me because she's someone who is going through war, which is awful no matter what you are. And so she could have every reason to hate people, you know, to feel betrayed because she goes from this idyllic farm in England where she's a racing pigeon. She's very successful. She's, you know, kind of got all the food and fresh water she could need. She's surrounded by other pigeons. You know et cetera, et cetera, to the western front, and it's awful, and so she she could have every right to to be really mad at people, but she can't quite get there. She still loves them, even though she's really confused by why they're choosing to do this immensely self annihilating global act and so I think right hopefully in that first page and then throughout you sort of see that where it's you know she's been through some dark stuff but she's not all doom and gloom and she's not cynical she's just trying to kind of make sense about what exactly it is in people that makes them behave so problematically yeah I,
0: I think and, and you make it clear I'm not sure if it was I feel like it might be later on I think when once we meet um maybe Cher Ami's the love of her life maybe but but there's like yeah. where you you talk about uh, or you the or Cher Ami talks about how they're not they're not the pigeons aren't wild and they're not free in that yeah. way the home yeah. pigeons
2: totally and I I think you know that's that's the thing too um listeners should know it's a love story that both um Wit and Cherami in the course of the war meet the people who they fall in love with. And, you know, in Cherami's case, she is able to sort of spend time with baby mine, who's this other pigeon who, you know, she's in the loft with. But yeah, they do have this conversation where neither of them really feels like they could leave. And I think that's the thing that struck me is that in the war, birds were this symbol, kind of like they are now, of freedom, right? It was like these guys were in the trenches and there was very little they could see except, you know, mud and rats and each other, but they could see the sky and in the sky they could see birds. And so in World War I literature, you have this obsession with sky and like the bird songs. And so to the men, the birds seem so lucky and so free, but if you're a pigeon, you kind of are, and you kind of aren't right. You can still fly and you're out of the trenches, but they have no choice like they can't not home like if you've trained a homing pigeon and then you release it it's going to have to home unless something terrible happens to it and so i wanted to show again with that weird liminal space of the domestic animal where both baby mine and and sharammy are like we're in love we could just fly away and not do this except we can't so yeah it's weird
0: and so Kathleen, how much research for, um, were you doing to understand that? Because it is so, cause when, when you write about it, um, we see how when Jeremy is, is moved from Britain and goes to France, then how she like is then re- like rehomed like in a way yeah. where where so she it she's not just flying back cuz then you could say well why didn't she just go back to britain as yeah. well like her original home farm
2: yeah yeah i did tons of research and my favorite thing and you know other people who do research this is like a hot tip i got that i have never not done and have never not gotten you know good results with and it's um to not just read about the time period that you're covering but to read in the time period so i read a bunch of you know contemporary sources about pigeons because of course i want to be up with the current scientific knowledge but then i also read a ton of you know pigeon keepers guides from the 1900s and the 1910s because that's the stuff that I have this character, Bill Cavanaugh, who's the best pigeon handler in the Lost Battalion, who becomes yes. much beloved of both wit and Cherami. and and so I was like, "What would Bill have been studying and so I read those books. but what was kind of amazing to me is that the knowledge that people had of how to raise and train and you know get pigeons to home back then is pretty much unchanged, like there's still tons of people all around the world who raise pigeons and have them home and have them race and who just, you know, have them for fun. And it's kind of the same. And so all that is to say that we know what to do as humans. Like we know, you know, food and water and tone of voice. And we know that smell is really important and visual cues and that probably there's some kind of magnetic thing happening, you know, in their beaks that might have something to do with how they orient themselves in relation to, you know, cardinal directions. But at the end of the day, we don't really know Mm -hmm. how they do it or why like we can get them to do it and we can kind of exploit these things that we know about them but you know when it comes down to it it's like well how the heck can they home you know we don't know
0: so kathleen then you so So you do all this research and you read these like guides, you know, pigeon keeping guides from the 1900s. This is amazing. And then and then and so you've researched it and then and then is it then when you also you're in it and you're writing and then the imagination um, also becomes alive. And then you as the writer decide that you say, Oh, then there's like a type of voice, a kind of voice that share a me or baby mine, or one of the other homing pigeons here. Yeah. And that's how you decide like where the imagination breaks in with all, because of all the research you've done. <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, you know, I, I wanted it to be such that the pigeons would kind of know why they did what they did. But even to them, it would sort of be a a bit of a mystery. And so, yeah, each pigeon hears a voice. And wherever they're homing to, they hear, you know, home, your name, home to where you're going by the airway. And like every pigeon hears that call. And that's that's what makes them go. And I thought it would be kind of cool because, you know, the original title for this book, which I'm glad I changed. Uh, I'm not the best at titles (laughs) and I always, my editors always help me change it. Um, But the original title of this book was An Instinct because I was very interested in the way that humans are animals and the way that even though we tend to put ourselves at the very top of the pyramid and sort of say humans are the best. And I think, you know, some people would object, but it's like, I don't know, I'm I'm not here to get too Preachy, but I mean, I think if you eat animals or if you own animals, I mean, you know, there's a hierarchy there and I think you can't deny it. And I'm not telling people to stop or or change, but, you know, we tend to put ourselves at the top. And I think when you see people doing things like war or violence or, you know, climate change, it makes one wonder, you know, if we're so rational, why are we doing this? And so I feel like I wanted this book to explore to what extent are we as humans, instinctive animals, and to what extent are animals also kind of, you know, instinctual and, and who has free will and, and what's fate and all these, you know, don't worry, the book doesn't, like, I sound like I'm, you know, high and an undergrad, like the book no. is not like that, but, you know, that stuff. No, no. And well, I'll say,
0: even from like what i think what it's also illustrated from what you read to us on the first in chapter 1 from Sherami like when um when she says i'm not sure i agree that day was an important one certainly but days don't carry the same meaning for pigeons as they do for humans and my life comprised other days like there's this also this 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 like kind of lovely separation and this exploration of that you're, as the, as when you're writing this, Kathleen, you're willing into being like you're, 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 you're giving us the pigeon perspective.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the things, um, that was exciting about writing this book is that I, you know, like I've always, always, as long as I can remember, been fascinated by world war one. And I've always thought, like, even since I was a little kid, because my dad was in the military, and he taught military history classes. And, you know, for whatever reason, I I think, you know, when he was doing all his research, and I had his books everywhere, the war that drew me was World War One. And, you know, so I knew I wanted to do something with it at some point. But I think, you know, I held back till I had the right story, because it's something where, I mean, how many thousands of books have been written about World War One? And who, you know, who am I? What do I have to say that hasn't been said and to me finally you know when brian mentioned cher ami and i stumbled into all that research i was like okay this is it this is this is an aspect of the war that kind of might help me answer a question that i've had ever since i was a kid but that is going to let me answer it in fiction where it's not really an answer so much as just an opportunity to to tell people like hey pay attention to this you know i don't have an answer i still don't i i guess you know to to go back to my question it was as a kid I was like why the heck did World War 1 happen which is a question that still baffles historians but you know when you're reading about it and you see that people willingly chose I mean 10 million men died soldiers and 10 million civilians and countless animals and when you know the way they died they like sat in these trenches and then someone yes. blew a whistle and they went over the top and okay what does that mean that means you're running out into this field that's full of barbed wire and you're being machine gunned and there's tanks and landmines and you just run across that field until either you get killed or you go back or maybe you make it i just i was like why like why like why literally would the entire globe have just lost its mind on that level where where all these men would consent to doing that and so I don't know that the novel answers that, but I would say, to go back to your point, you know, Cher Ami's judgment and her distance and her, you know, agreements or disagreements with what humans think is most important was a chance for me to ask myself those questions. Did,
0: uh, Kathleen, do you, because I know you just said, I don't know, but do you feel like you know something more from the
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I do. I think, um, you know, I think, (laughs) uh, yeah, I'm just going to say it. I don't care if, if anyone's offended by this answer. I think the problem is the patriarchy. And I think the problem is toxic masculinity. And I think, um, the problem is that, you know, for most of human history around the globe, this, um, you know, dominant hierarchical and often extremely physically and genderedly violent mindset has been the paradigm. And I think that gets you world war one. And I think it gets you late capitalism and I think it gets you racism. And I think it gets you, I just think it gets you all these things where, you know, I, I still today look around the world and, and I think most people really are wanting a better world, but it's just like a handful of, of very evil selfish men who are, killing all the rest of us and i think that's what happened in world war one especially because i mean and this is in the book too especially in wit's side of things because i think you know major whittlesey was almost certainly a closeted gay man and i think a huge part of what i found in my research is that the way that men were incited to go to war was through this appeal to not be womanly and to not be soft and there was this real mania in europe and the states of fearing that like red blooded manhood was on the wane because you had the society that was going from you know a more um outdoorsy you know agrarian industrial like using your body to like earn a living to this white collar quote unquote effeminate you know feminized office work, this bureaucratic work, this brain work. And a lot, I mean, and you can find it from generals all the way down to the, the privates, sort of this idea that it was going to be this manly adventure, almost like it was Boy Scout camp. And then, you know, it wasn't.
0: Yes. And that becomes, and that becomes clear, I think, when the Americans, um, when they arrive in, is it Calais? And yeah. then I think there's a, a, a French soldier who's standing in the the village and, and and kind of witnessing one of the characters who's like singing very loudly and getting his men to sing back. And, and he's like, this sounds like men who have not yet seen the thing they're they're singing about.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that was sort of, you know, uh, the propaganda of the war really did kind of Sell people on this idea, and you know, in 1914, famously, I mean, like Barbara Tuckman and and everyone quotes this, but you know, they they marched off to war in August of 1914, and all of the leaders were saying, "Okay, we'll be back before the leaves have fallen," mm-hmm. you know, like they thought it was going to be this just like super fun, easy, almost like a soccer match, and you know, somebody would win, and it would be you know, jolly good old sport, and then you know, back to normal and. That's not what it was.
0: Kathleen, the, when you say, the, yeah, there's, there's a couple of things I really would like us to talk about because yeah. it was so interesting, like finding out um, that Cher even though the name is the... Um, I'm not I don't know I don't know French but is the the is the masculine yeah. version of the but she is a girl pigeon um and then falls in love with baby mine who is also a fee, a girl pigeon or yeah. I'm not sure the, if there's a good pigeon term for yeah. female versus male with a um in pigeons but so so that seems very important and interesting and then um Charles Whittlesey then and then, when we were just talking a moment ago, you said almost certainly, a closeted gay man, so in your research, you must have found things that that really led you to believe that definitely because he is inspired by a true um a, a, a true person yeah. <laughs> someone a real person from history um so this is so was this part of also what um highly interested you in this story. And, and yeah, could you talk a little bit about that gender,
2: sexuality? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I think war throughout history has been, you know, an almost exclusively male pursuit. And I know, you know, that's changing. And I think, I guess (laughs) I'm pretty, um, radical. I, I think war is awful and I don't think we should ever fight it and i know some people think i'm like this cockeyed fool for thinking we could live in a world without violence but i really think it's a choice that Kathleen, some people are making
0: it's it's really odd but today i chose and didn't realize it but maybe subconsciously i'm wearing a peace sign t-shirt
2: Ah, oh, that's perfect yay Oddly. yes and that's but right I, where i'm at <laughs> I, I Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in that belief, but I think, you know, there's there's this real attitude still of like, oh, it's nice to think that we could live in a world without guns or like we could live in a world without violence, but tough luck. It's the real world. And I'm like, no, it's we we are the world. We make the world. That's a choice we're making. And we could just make a different choice. And so I think I thought with, you know, Cher Ami and Major Whittlesey, you know part of their great tragedy i mean it's it's World War one, so it's a sad book it's a tragic book was um the tragedy of anyone where you're an individual in a society and I know in America we like to have this neoliberal fantasy that we can all act as these atomized individuals and be whatever we want to be. but I think most of us realize eventually that it's not so simple and so when I was on again just to go back to this you know er moment of wikipedia <laughs> i I saw that there was this gender confusion about Sherami that she had been a female bird her entire life but she had this male name. And I think part of that, you know, there's no conspiracy, it's just it's hard to tell with pigeons to be totally honest, <laughs> you know, they don't manifest their gender in a super visible way. And so I you know, I think that was just sort of a mistake, but then when they went to stuff her, they did discover um the taxidermist found that she was a girl. And they were like, uh, eh, just leave it. You know. So she, she still gets misgendered, even though now people know the truth more, but just this misgendering seemed interesting. And to me, that continued insistence on misgendering at the moment of her enshrinement mm. as a symbol was really significant and spoke to, certainly back in 1919, who the public or who the powers that be could attribute heroism to. Like, it's just easier to think a war hero is a dude. And so they left it. And so there was that. And I wanted to explore that. And I think the opportunity to have a female perspective and have a queer female perspective in a war that's almost always told from a male perspective was kind of thrilling. Mm. And then with Whittlesey, and this is part of why I knew I had to have both of their voices, I was struck by how like I said, how clear it was to me that he must have been a closeted gay man. And the reason I think this is, um, he never wrote it down himself. He was not a journal keeper. He didn't have a diary. He was an extremely private man, but all through his life and all through the coverage, there were all these euphemistic terms that would have been known at the time as code for him being gay. So it was, you know, stuff that we still have with us confirmed bachelor, no time for the ladies. Um, the, the, I guess I can say this is a bit of a spoiler, but, you know, if people don't want to know, don't listen. But, I mean, he's real, so this happened. Um, <laughs> he, he left suicide notes, right? He he took his own life, sadly, and he left nine suicide notes. And the, the quote-unquote smoking gun that I have is that in the one to his best friend and law partner, this guy, um, John Prynne, he began just a note to say that I am a misfit by nature and by training And there's an end of it and that's really how someone who was gay at the time would have come out you know they would have like to say i am a misfit by nature and by training is essentially saying i'm gay and so you know i think the fact that he couldn't even say that until he was killing himself speaks to how privately he kept it um for reasons that i think should be obvious a hundred years ago you couldn't just be yourself like you can today and I just found that really interesting too that we have this guy who was hailed as this war hero and and then the way you know i'm not to ramble but i think this will wrap it up like Whittlesey was a great leader not because he was some manly he-man but because he was quiet and smart and confident and caring and compassionate and really paid attention to his men and made sure they worked as a group and made sure nobody got left behind and you know a lot of his leadership would come down to if we must make it a binary more feminine traits, you know, and that's why his men loved him so much. And then after this incident in the pocket, the media and the military and the government tried to make him over into this red-blooded, rah-rah he-man, where they, they said he was Charles go to hell Whittlesey, and that when the Germans asked him to surrender, he told them to go to hell. And all his life after the war, he was like, I never said that, I would never say, I, I, that's not me, I never said that. And they were like, mm, you did, <laughs> like, we're gonna say you did. And so I just thought it was really telling how in both of their cases, their true natures, much of which had to do with their gender expression and sexuality got erased for propaganda purposes. It's so
0: interesting, Kathleen. Thank um, you. So, so the, the story goes back and forth between to the two, Sherami and and Charles Whittlesey. Um, and but, but you end with Cher Um why why is that? Why does she get the the final word?
2: Yeah um a lot of reasons. That's a great question. I love that question as as a writer because for one it's practical and you know I've kind of revealed let's like pigeon yeah. out of the bag that you know, Whittlesey doesn't make it, he dies. And... That's what I thought it was okay to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. We've already no, and there. he. I love talking about the ending. And um, just the way that he, you know, now that we're talking about it, the way that he kills himself speaks to his nature, I think. And he he really does, as I depict him, he was so meticulous and so thoughtful and so compassionate that he, he just couldn't go on. He was so full of survivor's guilt, so full of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, you know, he really did see this as the only way to make it stop, but he didn't want to inconvenience anyone. And so he booked a ticket on this ocean liner, um, that was bound to Havana. He had no business in Havana and he jumped because he didn't want to leave a mess and he didn't want to leave a body. And like I said, he left these nine suicide notes to to different beloved people in his life. He paid his landlady. He made sure the rent, check would be cash. I mean, he was so thoughtful. And so all that being said, by the end of the book, one of my two protagonists is in the ocean, so he can't speak anymore. And in a way, I think that was part of Whittlesey's intent is that he authored his death in such a way that it's the last word. And I think, you know, I don't want to project in him too much, but I really think he was an intelligent guy. He's a Harvard-educated Wall Street lawyer I think he knew that the only way for him not to be a war hero anymore was to do this. Because once your war hero wants to go to hell Whittlesey kills himself, you can't do that to him anymore. He's no longer this uncomplicated propaganda piece. Exactly. And, it
0: reveals yeah. the pain that he and the other men are carrying, even if they were conditioned not to speak of it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so he by you know, that ultimate silencing, he really spoke as loudly as he could, but for the purposes of the book, he's out. And so (laughs) Shara, me. Um, so not only do I choose to have a pigeon speak, she's, she's a ghost pigeon basically, right? She's dead this whole time. And so I grant her this ability to speak from beyond death, beyond the grave because death for her is not, you know, what it is for humans. And so it just, I had to give her the last word, but I think, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do was end on this idea of of how this other guy, you know, Larny, who was just a a private, you know, just an enlisted guy, um, you know, once he found out that Charles Whittlesey had done this, he booked himself a ticket on the same ocean liner <sighs> yes. and rode it there and back to figure out what happened. Because he, again, these guys loved Whittlesey so much and he was devastated, this guy Larny, He was like, why would he do that? I want to understand what happened to him. And, you know, he didn't really understand. And so you end with Cher Ami being like, I don't know, maybe you understand. That was, that was so sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know it's, I, I hope this book makes people cry. I wanted to write a war book that was unrelentingly realistically sad. Because I think too often war stories, even if they have the best of intentions, make war seem fun or make it seem noble, or make it seem worth it. And I, I really hope it's hard, <laughs> if not impossible to get to the end of my book and think it would have been fun to fight in World War I. Uh,
0: mission accomplished. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, what, what does your dad think of this book, Kathleen?
2: Yeah, he really loved it, which means a lot to me because he is kind of a classic, um, strong, silent Midwestern dad, not real demonstrative. Um, You know, it's clear we love each other very much, but we don't have tons of deep conversations. And so I was really nervous for him to read it because, you know, like I said, he's he's a military guy himself and he used to teach the subject and he loved it. He said, I nailed it. He said, I got everything right. And my favorite story about this is that um, not only did he think I got all the war stuff right, he was like, you also got the pigeon stuff right. And did you know that I, your dad, when I was from ages twelve to sixteen, I used to raise pigeons in Nebraska for fun through the Boy Scouts. And I was like, Dad, like you're only telling me now. <laughs> so okay.
0: <laughs> so it's a family thing, Kathleen, is what yes. you're trying to say. This, this, yes, this, um, yeah, this this known pigeon enthusiast. Um,
2: it's it's from your dad. Yeah. And also, I think it's funny because like, I didn't even know that. And that kind of goes with my themes of fate. Like, who knew? Like, I'm the daughter of a pigeon lover. So, of course, I love <laughs> pigeons. I didn't even try. It just happened.
0: Um, and I have to ask you this pigeon question, too. Um, have you visited Trafalgar Square?
2: Yes, yes, I have. And I did it before they um, banned feeding pigeons. And so there's, I, they're not digitized anywhere, sadly, or I'd send you one. But there's all these like old pictures of me somewhere. That my friend Clark took of me, just like covered in pigeons, because I was feeding them, like in Mary Poppins or something.
0: Oh, that's great! Well, if you find it and you can take a picture of the picture, <laughs> yes, that's, what's, that's what Instagram's for, Kathleen. Yeah. No, just kidding.
2: <laughs> I know. I wish I knew where it was. I'll see. I'll see what I can do.
0: Oh, but I'm so glad you were there and that you were feeding them. How brave you are! Oh my goodness. Yeah. They're really nice. I love them. And and I think it is so. um so lovely that we could talk in October um this it seems even more special with this the like the this momentous battle that took place in October in 1918 and um this this so so much research went into this but so much imagination and 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 feeling went into
2: this as well yes thank you so much for this opportunity and yeah this is Um, you know, it's October 5th today. And so, you know, Wint and his men and Cherami would have been in the pocket. Um, they would have just been getting rescued. Cherami would have flown her mission on October 4th and then they would have been getting rescued. So it's very, very timely that we're talking now. Oh, well,
0: thank you so much for talking today, Kathleen. I've loved it.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: Maybe maybe I'm in love with you 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 I say maybe
0: Thanks to George Cooper for the use of his song Maybe, maybe as our as our theme song Check out Living Writer's website for past episodes and the archives. Thanks for listening, everyone.
1: Back to the daily sports report here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. 88.3. My name is Andrew Miller. Uh, with me today is uh, a very in- eclectic cast of characters. Uh, Lucas Vargas, Jared Greenspan, and Matthew Levy. Uh, Matthew, is this your first GSR? I've never had a you before. Yes, it is my first. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, this is going to be interesting. Uh, Jared and Lucas, I'm sure, will show you the ropes. Lucas, how are you doing? Man, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, it's good to be on these, even, even if we're not in the studio yet. But, uh, you know, I think for the first question for Matthew, we've got to just ask him about uh, dorm life, man. I mean, what's the, you know, what's it like, and what's the some of the rules you got to follow? Yeah, it's uh, very strict. You have to wear your mask everywhere. I had my mask off, like, just, like, on the tip of my nose, and I got yelled at for that. So it's been a little tough. But, you know, just hanging in here, dorm life. You getting to meet kids, or is it, is it tough to meet new people? It's a little tough. I mean, you meet the kids on your hall, and then I have a couple of friends nearby in
0: Markley, which is kind of nice, but yeah, it's a little tough.
1: Well, it's good to have you on here, man. Thank you. And uh, J- and we also have Jared Greenspan. Jared, how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, so Matthew's first DSR is with Miller as the host. My first DSR last year, Miller was the host, mm-hmm. so just keeping the tradition alive here
0: good lord that's a that's quite company to be in my first dsr i think was with